This episode of the podcast was recorded on the 4th of August 2021 at home in Wicklow. The overriding theme of this episode is presence and the challenge of being present. And I do not once mention the word mindfulness because that's not really where the focus is. I'm speaking about being present in a very existential, emotionally and psychologically well sense. And towards the end of the episode, I present a sort of a an idea or a theory built around integrity and understanding integrity as wholeness and the wholeness of self and the wholeness of a self that you can like that you can feel comfortable presenting to the world in the present. Quite a few actors get a mention in this episode for various reasons. Matt Damon, Tom Hanks, Will Smith, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, and I also talk about how emotion can sneak up on you and overwhelm you. And how emotion can be a scary thing. And I share a personal story, a personal incident, a personal memory of how I was relatively recently in my life overwhelmed by a big emotional moment. So there you go. Lots of interesting stuff to look forward to, I hope. I will see you there presently. Hi, I'm Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How the hell are you? How's she going? How's life? How has your week been or your month or your year or whatever, whatever time frame you're dealing with? Is time going extremely slowly or really, really fast? It's a strange thing, the repetitive nature, how repeating things again and again and again can seem like drudgery, but it also seems to accelerate time. I found since becoming a parent that life has accelerated, time has accelerated so many routines and repeated behaviours are in place in terms of what I do as a as a parent, as a father. Father. Canon father. Um yeah, that that things just have gone very quickly. It's it's a strange thing, our grasp of time, how we perceive it, how we feel it, how we experience it. And that is going to lead me into this episode's prevailing topic which is an engagement with the concept of present (laughs) and further to the notion of time I'm thinking about the present tense the present moment I did refer to the present tense a couple of episodes ago when I was quoting the joker 
as written by Alan Moore in The Killing Joke and his use of the present tense to describe, you know, the particular excruciating existential anxiety of being alive and facing forwards into dire reality. I'm going to return to this. I'm going to return to this, but I don't want to get deep into it right this second. I'll, um, I'm going to row back. I'm going to row back upriver, back to where, I've, to where I was, to where I've been, uh, back to the actual river that I was swimming in mere hours ago after teaching karate this morning. I, uh, the sun was out and I thought this is a window let's take this window and myself and my cousin and my daughter went down to the river where we bumped into a friend she was leaving as we were arriving so there was a, a quick chat under the shade of the tree shade of the trees and then in we went it started to rain as almost as soon as we arrived my daughter was not impressed she's like come on and swiftly changed out of her swimming gear which she had put on before we left the house back into her civvies and sat there with a grumpy face on the towel wrapped around her now she was sheltered she was out of the rain but yeah she took a very dim view of the inclement turn in the weather however my cousin and i plunged in and yes there has been a drop in temperature in the old river it happens quickly i would argue Come mid-September, late September, maybe only mid-September, the river is almost too cold, even for the likes of me, who's a little bit used to some cold water. But the the sea, the sea will be beckoning. The uh, the colder nights, there's a drop, a drop in temperature. There was a uh, a man here last night doing some work at hashtag blessed. Just uh, clearing some ground. He's going to lay some gravel later in the week, spread some gravel. So uh, he was having a quick word with me and commented how the, the nights are drawing in already. Now, even you know, even though we do have a great, good old long day still, it is only early August after all. Let's not, let's not plunge ourselves into some sort of strange anticipatory thing regarding winter. It's coming. She's coming. Quick, light the stove. We're not there yet, but there has been a noticeable shortening of the uh, of the evening. The, the 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 night light descends a little bit sooner than it has been, and there was I last night trying to round up our lovely. I was going to say I was going to say a bad word there. Our lovely cherished, cherished. I say our cherished chickens. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's I, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Uh, as I said to my wife this morning, if they don't start laying eggs soon, I think it's time to regard them as being more trouble than they're worth. And there's an axe in the shed that I can sharpen and deploy with with uh, with great enthusiasm, uh, should the need arise. However, I don't. I don't think it'll come to that um, because I'm I'm outnumbered in this household of animal lovers chicken cherishers so uh, rest assured rest assured the the bobble-headed half polish half mexican chickens 
will continue to thrive and drive me mad at night trying to get them into their their flipping <laughs> their flipping flooming blooming freaking hen house carrying them one by one as they squawk even though i think they're asleep who knows who knows what goes on in a chicken's head who knows i mean we've had a lot of you know a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the world of sports uh, in recent years about concussions and the damage of you know high impact sports there was that that movie that will smith was in i have to say i thought it was awful oh lads what was that called was that called it wasn't called concussion was it and it wasn't called headache <laughs> um but it was based on a true story about an african doctor who started to diagnose former nfl players uh, that's american football players and how post retirement many of them were suffering the quite dreadful after effects of repeat concussion you know leading to uh, massive depression uh in uncontrollable 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 rage um you know altered brain states and really not well um but anyway it was made into a very po-faced sanctimony i mean what it's, it's hardly going to be a comedy is it <laughs> i mean there's yeah there's material there if you wanted to go down that road but it was just way too po-faced self-serious sanctimonious and uh, you know a saintly performance by will smith who i struggle with i'm going to be honest you know he's an actor of considerable charisma i think and i i had high hopes for him back in the day when he graduated from the fresh prince of bel-air and appeared in uh six degrees of separation like that's isn't that the movie that the 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 game is named for um where he claimed to be sydney poitier's son nephew some sort of relation and charmed the pants off some uptown crowd i think stocker channing was in it as well and i thought this guy this is one to watch but my will smith argument is that he is one of those actors who never ever wants to be unattractive never wants to um discourage his fans never wants to turn them off and even when he plays superficially kind of edgier characters perhaps in like perhaps in peter berg's hancock where he played a like an alcoholic superhero grumpy it's still cute it's still cute grumpy and yeah it's it's, it's just one of my all-time hates in actors when they play cute just just don't just stop will you come on give it up will smith stop um yeah there you go anyway now why was i talking oh yeah yeah will smith six degrees of separation and why was i talking about that dun 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 complete loss of the train of thought it's left the station and it's on a track and i cannot get it back hmm interesting 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 and i just did a sneaky a sneaky edit there and this is not the same sequence i just stole some time to regather my train of thought pull it back to the station 
And what I was going to say, I was talking about Will Smith, I was talking about Concussion, that movie. I'm sure it's not called Concussion. Con- concussion? Concussion. Anyway, I had asked the question, what do chickens think about? What's in a chicken's head? Now think about it. A chicken spends its entire day pecking the ground. Effectively, headbutting the ground with its mouth, I grant you. But perhaps a chicken is in a permanent state of concussion from all that headbanging all day long. So maybe there's nothing going on in a chicken's head except a little tiny brain rattling around there frantically trying to hold on to a, a hand strap, uh, frantically trying to grip the inside of the chicken's skull to stabilize itself. But no, here we go again, chicken pecking the ground and that might be the end of it that's why maybe that's why chickens are so dumb no offense no offense to the chicken lovers out there no offense to uh the buddhists perhaps 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 there's a a relation of yours embodying embodying one of my three one of my three chickens and i'm going to apologize to the buddhists again because what i do before i sit down here to record i have to go around this room and kill flies yeah i know uh why don't i just open a window because i'm cruel and evil and i hate flies and i'm happy to kill a fly or two they have been prolific in hashtag blessed and they buzz around my cat's cat food and lay eggs in it did i ever tell you that story about how i had two terrapins when i was a little fella they were like a compensation gift because I didn't get to go to some posh school that I'd, 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 uh, I'd followed in my older brother's footsteps and um, been awarded a full scholarship to this uh, posh secondary school. But it was decided for various reasons that I wouldn't go. And so I was given two little terrapins. And a terrapin is, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> and I'm hesitating myself to go, what is a terrapin? It's just a little, a little kind of baby turtle, basically, isn't it? Anyway, I had two, and apparently they liked to eat mince, like minced beef, raw minced beef. So I gave them some of that, but they died. They died within like 24 hours. And we looked at the mince, and there were flies' eggs in the mince. And that's why they died. And from that day, I have always waged a war on flies for the terrible terrible heartache they caused me they didn't cause me any heartache i barely batted an eyelid um it was a you know a very brief a brief love affair with my terrapins and then they were gone and i just did something else like read a comic or something so there you go but anyway that's what happens get rid of the flies here because they're noisy and they buzz and then you can hear it and that's not fun not fun for anyone so there you go now my daughter asked me the other day when i got my ears pierced when did you get your ears pierced she said and why she was asking me that is because i believe her mother my wife has told her that she can get her ears pierced. So this is, this is, you know, quite exciting. And I 
told her that I only had one of my ears pierced. It was pierced twice at different times. But I had my ear my ear pierced when I was about 11, I think. I think, yeah, 11 or 12, 11. And it was a very big deal. I don't know about you, where you were growing up. Um, but if you, were, if you were a boy, there was huge, huge stigma around getting the correct ear pierced. And the received wisdom was, if you got your right ear pierced, now I don't mean the correct, but I mean right as in not left, if you got your right ear pierced, that meant you were gay. And that was an absolute no-no. Under no circumstances did you want to make that life-altering mistake. And it's interesting. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I subsequently got my left ear pierced to comply and to make sure... Uh, I attracted uh, attention for the right reason. Like, hey man, cool, you got your ear pierced and well done. You are clearly a young heterosexual male and we approve of this. Now let me give you a hug and a kiss, you gorgeous thing. Now, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because like, that's a sort of a, <laughs> it's a very early bit of social conditioning. Now, my recollection is that I didn't have any sort of homophobic impulse. So my motivation to not get the wrong ear pierced, my motivation wasn't to make sure no one thought I was gay because being gay was so horrible and unnatural and repulsive or whatever. It was just simply, I don't want people to think I'm gay because then, the, you know, the... the the dickheads, the bullies, the the not nice lads would kick the crap out of me. So it was utterly motivated by an instinct for self-preservation. And I mean, obviously there was some part of me that did care. I, I don't appear, I don't want to appear that way. I don't want to attract the wrong kind of attention. I mean, that was, that was really it. Um, but ultimately, of course, that becomes that becomes like a, a conspiracy of silence doesn't it really and yeah I mean it wasn't like I was growing up in a house where homophobia was a thing I mean I grew up with liberal lefty leaning parents conservative in their own way but they were sort of youngish young hippies young sort of moderate hippies yeah I remember saying that to people you know you say it to people I remember saying that to my contemporaries at different times in my life and I guess it wasn't that common a choice um, I mean that's an understatement it wasn't it wasn't a very common choice now of course because my parents were like that there were many hippie-ish alternative-ish friends in their circle and I grew up with those people and the children of those people so it was normal to me but it wasn't the conventional sort of 70s 80s upbringing that a lot of other Irish children were having however it wasn't way out there it wasn't way out you know it wasn't tree hugging it wasn't parents being blitzed off their heads on illicit substances 
um, they were working parents. Uh, my mother was a teacher, uh, a Montessori teacher, and subsequently uh, like a play school, kindergarten uh, runner. She ran her own um, yeah, preschool for years in the local community. My father did many different things, but ultimately became a cabinet maker, carpenter, woodworking contractor. And so the hippiness kind of fed in really in other ways with the sort of political influences, certain music, I suppose, certain literature that was in the house. And the most obvious demonstration of the hippie lifestyle or predilection was at social events, parties, and then there would be drugs, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, even again as a kid you grow up with it so it doesn't seem to be in any way unusual it just seems normal uh but looking back even it, i don't feel it was i don't feel it was way out there um yeah anyway I'm, I'm i'm kind of saying that in the context of there was no overt uh homophobia in my home in in the family um but you gotta remember as well you know, it wasn't like you'd walk out your door and bump into lots of gay people. And, you know, Ireland at that time, it wasn't particularly diverse culturally or sexually. Um, it's a radically different country now, in my opinion. And attitudes have changed. Many, many attitudes have changed for the for the better, much for the better. Um, but yeah, I, um, I don't know that the... My own kind of barometer or radar was very sort of indifferent, but accepting. I was just like, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't really meet. I mean, my parents had one gay friend who was quite flamboyant and he always caused a bit of a stir. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I just wasn't meeting. I wasn't meeting anyone. But then it wasn't, that wasn't the time when people would come out and say it to you or be open or out, I suppose. So yes. Um, I did have some thought about this. What was that thought? Hmm. Don't know. Don't know. Anyway, there's not really there's not really a conclusion there. However, the thread the thread that I'm trying to trying to weave here, it's it's an interesting thing. And if we take the idea, let's just let's just run with closeted closeted homosexuality or closeted otherness or closeted lesbianism um i mean when i say gayness i i, I kind of apply that to whether it's it's homosexual whether it's, it's male or female gay to me it's it's either way there both genders are included is what i'm trying to say and i'm not going to get into every permutation of gender it's just not um it's not something like i have any real any real authority with which to speak so if you want to think, you know, include uh, trans and bi, um, any form of queerness, otherness, that's all good. Uh, no issue with any of that. Um, but my point is, if we run with this idea of closeted otherness, let's just put it that way. Because, I mean, that, that doesn't just have to apply to gender or sexuality. I mean, that can be, uh, that can be a, a political leaning that can be a religious conviction um who knows it it could be any number of things 
But I'm really interested in the idea of being present and what what people are willing to present of themselves and I'm trying to sort of look at this in the context of what we do to hide and what we do to conceal ourselves and what we do to avoid ourselves really um and this you know this train of thought started it it probably started on a subconscious level after i recorded the last episode which in which i looked a little bit not a lot but i did look a little bit at alcoholism and addiction and i suppose i was thinking that you know, there's a you know there can be many reasons why someone ends up living that life or being addicted, um, or only being only being able to meet the world under the influence of a altering substance, something to bring them up, something to bring them down, something to help them quiet the voices that they don't want to hear, something that helps them shut the door on the demons something that simply facilitates their engagement with life and facilitates their engagement with other people and facilitates probably their disengagement from self um now that concept the concept of disengaging from self this is something that can be a very disciplined, ascetic, rigorous, spiritual pursuit. And it can come via meditation. It can come via, I don't know, can it, can it come via psychedelics? I, I ask as someone who has never uh, taken anything like that. Um, it can come via, you know, deep sort of religious practice yogic practice zen practice um i I suppose you know anyone is capable of pursuing that path in whatever way they see fit uh, away from the world of drugs away from the world of alcohol away from the world of substances uh, and away from the world of dependency the the idea of the the disengagement of self and it's it's not something that's easily done and our conviction that we are at the center of our own experience i suppose i mean that's i, I feel i i don't think that's a, an ambiguous thing to say that most of us experience life with that sense of I am I. I am the I living this life. I am the me moving through the daily experience. I am the I am the me in this moment. And it's very hard to detach oneself from that. And it's very hard not to not to be responsive to that conviction or that sense of self. 
uh, on an ongoing basis, on an in-the-moment basis, on a personal history basis. That happened to me. This is what I experienced. This is what I felt. This is where I am now. And I'm, you know, for me, I am very much in that mode. And it's not that I haven't intellectually considered the idea of the removal of self or the sort of neuroscientific or metaphysical concepts of self. Uh, the, the idea that there is no self. I mean, this is, this is the argument that has been put forward by many thinkers and explorers of humanity. And I've listened to them. I've read some of, you know, read some, read various things, I suppose. I I feel like I've, I've assimilated or taken in some pretty basic concepts around that idea. And it's not that I, I don't, I don't, I don't reject them. I don't reject those ideas on any level, but I sort of fundamentally recognize that that's not where my own wiring lies. It's not where my own, um, it's, it's not where I negotiate my own comfort with existence. It's not, that's not the space I go to, uh, through martial arts, through the practice of karate, I definitely pursue an eradication of ego in that area. And that's that's a sort of a, a philosophy of martial arts application that I've embraced and cultivated in myself, you know, over um, over the last almost 30 years. Uh I think that the 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 ultimate goal in martial arts is it is the erasure of self it is the erasure of the ego it is acquiring a, a humility that is ultimately profoundly peaceful and instilling in yourself the 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 instilling in yourself the resistance or the unconcern around provocation now it's that and that's that's a difficult thing because fundamentally what that is it's the, the, the where the removal of ego comes into that is you're saying I have no ego, therefore I cannot be offended. There is no, there is no, there's nothing to protect. I have no wish to protect myself because I'm not valuing myself that highly. And therefore the anger or the provocation that is being directed at me, it's, it's not mine. It's not, it's not a product of me. It's, it's outside of me. And, I choose not to engage with that. And that in itself, I believe, is a type of weapon. That is truly, that can be truly disarming. Because very often, 
when someone is angry, an angry person, someone is trying to provoke you, they want to fight. I mean, that's the desire, fight with me. Now, the motivation behind that desire to fight, that's unknown. That could be something that they, they want to... They want to recreate something that they've always known, that that's the only place they feel comfortable. Uh, If they've grown up in a turbulent household, uh, if it's the only way they understand validation or engagement is to be involved in conflict or to be shouted at or to be struck. Um, It could be a self-hating thing, a self-hurting thing. Who knows? Or <laughs> or they might just hate you. <laughs> they might just think, this guy's a dick. <laughs> I want to beat him up. Yeah, it's possible. Um <laughs> why does he look so happy? You know, don't don't be don't be smug. Don't be smug with your humility. I am so humble. Oh my god, it's almost unbearable. I think I'm the most humble person in the world. My humbleness is so awesome. Yes. Anyway, I am veering, veering, veering into the abyss, the abyss of uh, the abyss of a tangent. The abyss of a tangent. What the hell would that look like? That's a that's a bit of a a physics uh, conundrum. It's a tangent, but it's also an abyss. Okay, uh, let's not go there then. Now. This idea then of what are we willing to present? How much of ourselves are we willing to show? What are we bringing to the party? What are we bringing to the engagement? This this point of contact with those who are outside me. And I think that's a big thing. I think that's a really, really big thing. And so much of it is connected to how comfortable we are in our own skin, uh, how easy we find our own company, how much work we've done on ourselves. Um how successful or not we've been in putting our stuff to bed, um, coming to some sort of terms with our issues, our pain, our trauma, our negative self-talk, our negative convictions about ourselves, um, about ourselves. Uh, our sense and you know i think often it's you know it's kind of a double whammy isn't it because we have something we believe to be true about ourselves that makes us convinced that we can only be seen a certain way by the outside world and when that is something that is personally emotionally or psychologically debilitating it's extremely difficult then to meet the world. It's extremely difficult to step outside the front door. It's extremely difficult to feel confident in pursuing what you want. It's extremely difficult to stand up and be seen. And 
I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm applying this idea just across the board as a human experience. You know, let's, you know, you know under the, the very false idea that all things are equal because all things are not equal, clearly. And so to, to draw it back to, you know, why didn't I meet more gay people in, you know, between the late 70s and the mid 80s uh, as a child in Ireland? <laughs> Where are all the gay people? Presumably they were there, but who was going to come out and go, yeah, I'm gay. Um, yeah. I know why I know why I'm somewhat fixated on this topic right this second. Matt Damon just got himself into trouble, didn't he? <laughs> Matt Damon. Oh man, that guy. Matt Damon, there's an interesting actor. I mean he's kind of one of the most innocuous nondescript actors ever. And yet he's had this really kind of terrific career. He's, he's, only, he's only a few years older than me. And I mean, I remember when Goodwill Hunting came out, which may have been my first time to see him, himself and himself and Ben Affleck. And I remember going, gosh, they're only a little bit older than me and they've, they've written, um, written and produced and starred in this Oscar-winning movie, which which actually stands up quite well. It actually stands up very well. And, a really lovely a really lovely Robin Williams performance um you know although I think it's probably it probably laid the groundwork for thousands of armchair psychologists who you know just took the the the, the kind of the dam break scene the climactic um emotional scene in that movie when Robin Williams as Matt Damon's therapist finally kind of gets him to to reveal his deepest, darkest pain because he'd been abused, physically beaten by his father um, who had been beating his, his, mo- his mother and he'd intervened. And Robin Williams is just just keeps saying to him, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, Will. It's, now, in the, in the context of the movie, it's a really powerful, really moving scene, really beautifully acted by the, the two guys involved. But over the years, I've often laughed and thought, you know, how many people have just gone and gone, all right, that's the key. <laughs> and people with no qualifications whatsoever just gone, going up to people who are completely, you know, in, in, in lost in absolute torment, reliving their trauma. And just go, here, man, it's all right. It's not your fault, yeah? It's cool. All good now, yeah? Not your fault, man. Cool. Let's go. Let's go for a point. Um, Yeah. But there you go again. We're touching into this area of pain hiding our pain hiding our trauma hiding ourselves what are we willing to present to the world and i'm not gonna lie i'm not gonna lie i mean i've cultivated in myself a somewhat somewhat fearless openness and i mean there's an aspect to it that i cringe at myself because i kind of go will you shut up stop oversharing no one cares. Stop. That's part. That's that's part. That's my own reaction to it at times. Um, however, I do quieten that voice because on the other side of it, I, I recognize the value to myself of just trying to be straight, to 
be straight about it and go, this is how I feel. This is what I think. And yet, even though I have been cultivating that uh, that habit, really, that habit and that kind of conditioning in myself, because I feel it contributes positively to my mental health and my mental stability and my emotional stability, even though I've been doing that now for several years, I still feel like there's a part of me that's kind of afraid of my own emotions and largely those emotions revolve around anger um, and they also revolve around a certain amount of hurt or, or grief and I know they're in me and I know there's a sort of a potentially a volcanic anger I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, trying, I'm trying to make myself sound like some sort of superhero. The volcanic anger has been released. It has been unleashed. Lava will flow. I'm not talking about that. I'm just trying to put into words that I feel at times there's a, an untapped or, a, you know, a suppressed anger in myself that feels potentially explosive and destructive and overwhelming. And... I could say the same thing about a certain reservoir or, mm, well, maybe reservoir is a good word. You know, uh, definitely some deeply held pain or hurt that I feel could over overwhelm me uh, if given full expression. And I kind of mind myself. I kind of, I manage it like... It's like a <laughs> it's like a saucepan on the stove. You're trying to stop from bubbling over, so you're just constantly adjusting adjusting the temperature, or slightly moving the lid off the top of the saucepan to let let the steam out uh, and let the fluid kind of drop down. But it's an interesting thing because sometimes you just can't control it. Sometimes it literally is, um, literally it's literally a dam burst. The dam inside of me, the dam of emotion. It's metaphorically a dam burst. But sometimes you can't stop it. You cannot stop the emotion coming out. And, I mean, I've referred to this before. You know, I've referred to occasional losses of temper, um, which, while necessary, while to, a, to an extent unavoidable, they don't always feel good. And there, there can be an aftermath, which is never which is often not pleasant to mop up or negotiate or try to repair. But the sort of softer, and I mean, that's my that's my term. I'm just going to go with, you know, if for me, anger is hard, it's fiery, it's explosive, um, it's it's dangerous, volatile. But the the other the other emotion I'm referring to, like the, you know, hurt, sadness, grief, that one can really surprise you and as I said, for me, it's a, it's a softer, it's a softer, deeper, more carefully held emotion. I feel in a way I'd, I'd be more protective of that in myself. Um, but here's one, right? I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I wasn't planning to tell you this, but it's just come into my mind. So there you go. That's how I work. I'm like a blooming goldfish. Oh, what's this? Hmm. So last year, Last year, yeah, yeah, last year. So last year, probably only about a month before 
my wife and daughter and I left Melbourne to return to live in Ireland. Um, and, you know, a lot of planning goes into a big relocation. There's a lot of emotion involved uprooting yourself. We'd been in Melbourne for 10 years. We'd lived in the same home for 10 years. And a lot of stuff had happened to us in that time. We'd become parents. There'd been, you know, illness. There'd been a lot of pressure in our relationship. You know, it wasn't... There, were a lot of, there was a lot of stuff we had to kind of, you know, push through, negotiate. Um, it's just that time of our lives, that stage of our marriage. And the decision to return to Ireland was a big one. Um, my wife is Australian. Uh, now, she had lived in Ireland prior to us being in Australia, so she knew what Ireland was like. She, In fact, she had become a, an Irish citizen before we moved back out to Australia. But the point I'm making is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And a lot of energy that's expended and there's a lot of vulnerability I think and a lot of unknowns and uncertainty prior to making a massive move to another place a massive move to another part of the world even though you know it it's still an uprooting it's still a period of upheaval it's still transition and I'm trying to give you this context because I'm trying to to, to provide a frame uh, to make sense of what happened and anyway, my wife and I were watching the ooh, second or third season. I don't know how many seasons there's been. There's a TV series called Ozark, which features Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman, famously of Arrested Development. And wasn't he in, was he in the sequel to Teen Wolf? He wasn't the original Teen Wolf, was he? That was Michael J. Fox. Anyway, you know who I mean. Jason Bateman, that guy, that actor. And in Ozark, he plays an accountant who has been laundering money for Mexican, uh, you know, the Mexican cartel. And he has moved his family to the Ozarks. And you're going to have to be an American listener to tell me where that is or someone who's good at geography. But it's sort of, is it? It's not the Appalachians, is it? But it's, you know, it's similarly rural. And there's lakes and it's a lovely countryside. Anyway, there's a storyline in Ozark where Jason Bateman's wife, played brilliantly and kind of chillingly uh, by Laura Linney. Um, is she an underrated actress? I don't think she is. Maybe, maybe, maybe she is. Maybe she hasn't had those truly stellar roles that have really gone bang. You know, here's the Meryl Streep of her generation. That's if you like Meryl Streep. You might not. You might find Meryl a bit too good. She's a bit too good at the old acting. Look, there she is acting again. Isn't she amazing with the acting? Uh, Laura Linney's a different beast, but she's kind of a brilliant actress. In fact, I did. I watched her the other night in Mystic River, the 2003 Clint Eastwood movie of the Dennis Lehan novel um, about kind of working class Boston people and... Yeah, dark movie. It hadn't, I feel it hasn't aged that well. It wasn't as good as I'd remembered. Um, But Laura Linney has a couple of scenes and one key scene at the very end of the movie. And yeah, she's just kind of brilliant in a couple of minutes of screen time. Uh, As just this kind of badass Lady Macbethian kind of wife convincing Sean Penn's character that uh, even though he's just basically murdered a childhood friend um, that he did the right thing even though he was wrong he got the wrong guy she's convinced him he did the right thing you're a king you're a lion you know you're the alpha 
you had to do what you had to do for the family and she is yeah it's just great it's a great little scene anyway Laura Linney in Ozark she has a brother a brother who has I'm gonna have a drink here pop uh, she has a brother excuse me she has a brother with mental health issues bipolar I think prone to extreme highs extreme lows and in the end it is decided he has become too great a liability that they simply cannot handle him and that he is going to implicate them too dangerously in terms of their uh, attempt to siphon off money from the cartel and avoid being slaughtered or brutally murdered by the cartel and so Laura Linney as the sister sets him up to be killed by one of the cartel's uh, sort of um, hitmen you know the guy who does the dirty work who does the tidying up a cleaner a la the Harvey Keitel character in Pulp Fiction and we don't see him being killed we see him being left behind in a diner Laura Linney drives out of the diner the hitman arrives and the brother who has just had a very emotional but sort of happy blissed out kind of conversation with his sister saying how he's going to kind of sort himself out and his kind of raw vulnerability is there to see um oh and i've gone blank on that actor's name i thought he did such a good job such a good job he was also in the um the um the recent movie about mankowitz Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter, credited co-screenwriter of Citizen Kane. Um, oh man, I'm just having some real brain farts here. I know exactly the director I'm thinking of. He did Seven, he did The Social Network, and his name is just not coming to my head, but he directed that version of Mank. This actor was in that as well. Anyway, whatever. In Ozark, he comes to that end, and Laura Linney is just driving away from the diner and it's just utterly bereft she knows she's done the most dreadful thing and handed her brother over to be killed and I remember I remember the the credits rolled on that episode and I mean I, I didn't I didn't even know I didn't even know the effect it had had on me but I remember I stood up and I just said to my wife, and my voice was kind of, it, it, I didn't even sound like myself. It, I just said, Jesus, that was, that was very sad. And I have, my youngest brother, my youngest brother has had many, many years now of ongoing mental health issues and addiction issues he is look he's alive he's a well he, i mean he I, I can't say he's well but he's he's alive he's at large he's still making decisions for himself uh not good decisions i would argue but that's that's the nature of a mental health disorder a mental health affliction and you throw addiction into the mix or substances or the inability not to use substances and it really is a it's a dreadfully sort of um helpless mix as in he cannot be helped um we you know I, I, i'm not going to go into the, the the many attempts to help him but anyway in that moment after watching that show i was suddenly on 
able to stop the emotion coming out and all of my repressed worry and concern for and frustration with my my youngest brother it all just came out in this deluge of tears and crying i mean sobbing i could not stop myself i was heaving and it was yeah i mean <laughs> you know i wasn't step i wasn't standing outside myself going oh my god this is so amazing look at how much i'm crying oh wow this is unprecedented but it was inc- you know that i'm going to argue that that was presence that was absolute presence there was nothing else of me in that moment except the expression of grief the expression of sadness the expression of loss and probably the expression of guilt and shame in terms of the guilt of not being able to save my brother the shame of not being able to help him sufficiently the frustration with everyone's attempts the frustration and judgment of the many ways in which he's been enabled um so that is that's confronting that level of feeling that depth of feeling is confronting i mean that's the simple truth and that you know that's an extreme end of it that's an extreme end of very clear um yeah very clear and unambiguous a very clear and unambiguous expression of something very real now of course i did give you the context there were probably other aspects of exhaustion of nervous anticipation of fear about the big move that was coming um but nonetheless the trigger was unmistakable and it was sort of a relating to or a a fellow feeling for that character in the show um yeah so if we connect that to the idea of what can we present of ourselves what do we choose to prevent or present of ourselves and why we might be afraid to do that my argument is well sure i mean these are very precious parts of ourselves that we feel we have to protect until we know what they are until we can understand them until we can feel and and really this is maybe the key part of this until we can feel that there's a safe place for them until we can feel it's okay for me to show this part of myself it's going to be safe i am going to be safe i will not be harmed i will not be made less of i will not be diminished or reduced by the sharing of this and if we apply that construction or that frame to closeted homosexuality closeted gayness closeted otherness of any kind um i mean i i don't find that i don't think that's a challenging idea i don't think 
I think that's uh, how how could you not feel that way if you felt that it's not safe? If you felt well, if I come out or if I and I, mean, I know this you know, I mean this is an out of date sort of what I'm talking about in many places this is no longer an issue thankfully, but in some parts of the world of course it is. Um, but but of course if you don't feel safe. How could you come out and say, this is who I am. This is what I am. That is still can be still can be a big deal. Um, and I've moved a million miles away from Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt bloody Damon. Matt Damon, who gets accused of Damon-splaining. Um, look, I've no issue with Matt Damon. I think he does a good job in most things I've seen him in. I guess, in a way, he's he's like a... He's like, he's like a less humorous, less lovable version of Tom Hanks. Like he's got that everyman quality to him, doesn't he? He's just, there's something very, I don't know, very approachable, accessible about Matt Damon in the, in the roles he played. I mean, the only time I can think of that he's really gone against that, he was very good in the talented Mr. Ripley being quite, quite quite the psycho and I remember that's a great scene in that movie where he's called out by Philip Seymour Hoffman well, he ends up killing doesn't he Philip Seymour Hoffman there was an actor who wasn't afraid to not be cute there was an actor who wasn't afraid to be ugly unattractive my god how could you not miss that guy so so good really really brilliant one of the best so so sad to see him go anyway Matt Damon just this week apparently <laughs> just this week he got he basically got shamed by his one of his daughters like he's got he's got like one of his daughters I think is 20 but he got shamed by one of his daughters I think he also has a daughter who's 12 so it could have been the younger one could have been the older one I'm not sure how many kids he has apparently he was still it does still or has until very recently was still using the word faggot um I know in you know, as as a I guess as a like as, as a homophobic slur, maybe just as a general term of abuse. Look, I didn't. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I didn't read too far into it. I'm, I'm not that interested in the ins and outs. I know one of his daughters wrote him a letter and is basically saying, "Dad, what the hell? Come on, uh, it's 2021. That that shit is done. It's done." And I don't know. I just thought this is. I mean. I was trying to think, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to not have the pearl clutching woke reaction and trying to go, okay, well, what's, you know, in what context would this like not be offensive? What, I mean, I just, I don't know. And I couldn't, I just couldn't think of one. I couldn't think of a context where you go, you know, Matt, you get a pass um, because you can say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, look, I've always thought of it this way. Um, I just don't think you can get away with that anymore. It just seems like what I I don't. There's like an intellectual shortfall there. I don't know. I'm not explaining this very well. I, I don't want to come out and go, oh, Matt Damon, that terrible homophobe. I don't really believe that that's the case. I just think it's another case of just someone not thinking about something or not realizing how it comes across or what it sounds like. Um... I mean, he works in the arts, for God's sakes. 
I mean, isn't that where, isn't that where traditionally all gay people have hidden out? The arts or the clergy? I'm joking, okay? Don't take offence. Everyone just relax. It was a joke. Um, yeah, so Matt Damon and the F word. Although I was, I was interested in that word as a kid because I knew it had that connotation. But then wasn't there something in English public schools and English public schools are actually what most of us think of as really posh private schools. But wasn't there a, a role, like a, like a prefect type role, and it, that person was a fag? Um, yeah, and of course, yeah, I mean, whatever. Like, as soon as I see a word, I start thinking of, you know, etymology and its other uses, fag as a cigarette. And isn't there like a, a kindling related word? Um, like it's a faggot of branches. Isn't that right? Am I wrong? I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, Matt Damon getting schooled by his daughters. So um, they're, they're Damon-splaining to him. And uh, hopefully, hopefully there's a bit, of, a bit of movement there. A bit of movement there, Matt. Um, yeah, so look, I kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know I've gone around the world a bit with this. Um, I suppose I wanted to bring it back to ultimately this idea of the present being present and the fear of being present is kind of the same as the fear of the present like the present moment because to be fully present is to be fully here and my argument is that the pathway to wholeness the pathway to true comfort to true you know to true sort of humble self-regard and self-confidence the pathway to that is to build integrity to build knowledge of yourself where you trust yourself where you love yourself and then there aren't areas of doubt there aren't areas you feel I need to hide this I need to conceal this and it means you can step into the present moment every part of you and go I'm okay I'm happy to be here I'm happy to be seen I know who I am I know what I think and I'm comfortable with not knowing what I don't know and I'm comfortable with you know not thinking some other things I don't know I mean it's it's that's the that's the goal and the removal of ego part of it is I'm not here trying to take over the world I'm not here trying to make a big name for myself I'm just here trying to live my life and be well and have good relationships with the people I care about and you know learn how to use myself the most efficiently the most productively to learn how to understand what kind of a tool I am <laughs> you're a tool all right <laughs> but you know if you think of it that way you know what what is my purpose you know to learn or to identify in yourself the type of instrument you are and where you should best apply yourself 
and that could be a million different things couldn't it um and it's just terribly sad it's terribly sad if you haven't come to that place in your life you haven't come to that place in your relationship with yourself where you can love yourself i suppose i mean that 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 is really what it comes down to and again not a self-absorbed narcissistic self-regarding love but just a love that involves care and concern and you know intelligent minding of oneself guiding oneself and holding oneself when it's needed i don't think any of that is bad quite the contrary i think it's good i think it's great i think it's necessary and you've got to find a way to offer it to yourself because you know people often just don't have the time <laughs> they don't have the inclination they don't have the resources and do you know what if you don't tell them how the hell are they gonna know you know if you don't put yourself out there and go this is what's going on this is how i feel this is why i behave the way i do and that's not an easy thing i'm not saying it's easy but i am arguing that that is that that is a road forward that is a road to the present the present and the presence of you and the road to being unafraid of that presence to be unafraid of being present and yeah that's i think that's where i'm going to leave you there may have been one or two or three or 17 other notions ideas that i had floating around but uh i'm happy i'm happy to leave it there and so i am going to make myself absent <laughs> i will remove myself from this there you are now okay so listen um as always thank you so much for listening this was episode 11 of the clear out podcast and you can read me at theclearout.com i just recently put up a blog post built around the idea of control and how little of it we have and referred to simone biles in that and her her recent very public mental health uh struggles i don't want to say struggles i mean i just think her her very frank discussion of her mental health and what she was experiencing um so i wrote a piece sort of inspired by that and again as i said around the idea of control you can support this podcast using the supporter link wherever you're listening to it you can also support me with a regular contribution if you wish through my patreon page so www.patreon.com forward slash the clear out and i would welcome anything you could give um if you can't give anything i just i would welcome you spreading the word and sharing this podcast if you think it's good i would welcome you subscribing following commenting whatever you know do what you can uh i mean really i just welcome you i just welcome you listening to it bringing your presence to this moment and hopefully enjoying it 
So there you go. Okay, take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you real soon. Mind yourself. All the best. Bye. Jesus.